0: Hi, my name is Angela O'Neill. I'm the Chief of General Neurology here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I also run our Women's Neurology program. So what FemTech is to me is how there are sex differences in the brain and how that hormonal milieu changes uh, our, how our be- brains behave. Welcome to FemTech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barretto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness.
1: Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's interview, I interview Dr. Mary O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill is an expert in women's neurology, serving as the director of the Women's Neurology Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She's written several papers on the subject and edited several books, including the American Academy of Neurology, Continuum Edition of Neurological Illnesses in Pregnancy, Women's Neurology, What Do I Do Now?, And Neurology and Psychiatry of Women, A Guide to Gender-Based Issues in Evaluation, Diagnosis, and Treatment. She was obviously well-qualified to be on the show. She also directs a Harvard Medical School course in women's neurology and psychiatry. In this interview, we discuss the difference between male and female brains, how contraception could affect what therapeutic drugs patients take when they have disorders like epilepsy, and the effect that pregnancy has on the brain and what risks pregnancy causes for neurological disorders. This was a super fascinating episode. I know you guys are going to love it. Enjoy!
0: Hi, Dr. O'Neill. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: You are a diamond in the rough. I have been looking for a neurologist that specializes in women's health to be on the show. Took me a few months, a few intros, but I finally found you. I'm so excited for this interview.
0: Well, I'm glad you found me too. That uh, was kind of a journey to get to where I am. But um, yeah, I do women's neurology. That's what I do. Oh my
1: gosh. And I'm so excited to learn about like, wh- how is that different from neurology in general? And like, what are the unique aspects of the female brain? And like, what do we experience disproportionately? I'm so excited to dive into all that. But before we do, we always love to learn a little bit more about our guests. So could you give our listeners a little bit of background in terms of, you know, where you're calling us? today? Where'd you go to school? How did, did you always know you wanted to be a brain doctor? When did you find out you wanted to be a woman's brain doctor? Kind of give us a little, little background.
0: Sure. So I'm actually, so I'm calling you from Boston. Um, I live, that's just where I've lived, uh, since I did my internship and residency out here. So, but I grew up and went to medical school in Oregon. That's where I'm from. Um, and before I went to medical school, I did some, uh, research, um, with some of the people out there in neurology, and I just fell in love that I knew I wanted to be a neurologist before I went to medical school, that's what I wanted to be. And so whenever all my colleagues were complaining about neuroanatomy and, oh my God, it's so complicated. It'll never work. I'm like, this is the best thing in the world. That's how I
1: feel about genetics. Everyone was like, this is so complicated. And I was like, I love DNA.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how I felt about neurology. So um, so I knew I wanted to be a neurologist, but I didn't know what kind of neurologist and so when i so I moved out to Boston, I did my residency training at Boston University and fell in love with stroke. so I did a stroke fellowship and then um when I finished, I thought, you know I don't know if I want to really do academics or private practice, so I went into private practice and then I came back to academics. And have been at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston um, for over a decade. And it was, you know, so I came back uh, to really kind of run the ambulatory clinic. And it was my former chair said, you know, Angela, what about running our women's neurology program? And I thought, sure, that's an interesting, you know, that would be interesting. But, you know, I thought I've been a neurologist for a long time you know, what, what more do I really have to learn about how women and well, boy, was I wrong. I have learned a ton in the decades since not only how these just and many, in fact, almost all neurologic disorders are different in women and wow. the prevalence, the incidence, how you treat them, lots of very uh, in substantial nuances. So it's wow. been a really fun pathway for me to to really become a women's neurologist specialist. Yeah. Um, I run a Harvard course now. I tr- you know, tr- uh, we have a fellowship program in women's neurology. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And Perfect. we're working on an educational curriculum for our national, um, the American Academy of Neurology. So wow. um, it's been a real journey from somebody who thought they knew everything to realizing, my goodness, I need to really learn this. Um, Well,
1: that's how deep the paradigm of the male backdrop to scientific and healthcare discovery is, is that even when you are yourself a doctor or a scientist, we are even blind to how biased and deep that data goes in terms of like, wait, all these cell lines are XY? All of the animal models were male? All of the clinical trials were men? Like, Things that we potentially assumed would be equal for both sexes or gender. At the end of the day, when you actually look under the hood, when you actually ask that question, was sex considered? The answer is so often no. And I mean, I give talks at like Pfizer and they're like, this is groundbreaking. And I'm like, a part of me is like, this should not be groundbreaking to consider sex as a yeah. variable, but
0: at the same time, it kind of is right now. You know, It is groundbreaking. I, I mean, it shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, pregnancy in the postpartum state, for most clinical trials, those are exclusions, yeah. right? So, you know, drugs aren't tested. We don't know a lot about them in pregnancy. We kind of learn about them, you know in pregnancy registries, but they're not tested, not even tested in pregnant animals for the most part. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do.
1: 72% of FDA approved drugs have zero data on pregnant or breastfeeding women. And I always tell you know it's not like we're pregnant or breastfeeding for the weekend, right? This is years of our life trying to get pregnant are pregnant breastfeeding, and it's like is there is this just this assumption that you know women won't take drugs during that time, and it's like that's not possible or happening right, well,
0: I, I so I have an obstetric dual neurology clinic where I see pregnant women or women who are planning pregnancy or postpartum, and that's um, unfortunately, a lot of some of their doctors have been telling them, well, you just can't take anything, right? And they have debilitating headaches or debilitating other things. And it's just not right. And it's not true either. So we really need to, to open up the research uh, doors.
1: How do physicians handle that right now? Because when, you know, the pharmaceutical commercials say, ask your doctor, you know, if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, ask your doctor, like, do the doctors get any kind of memo? Like when they're <laughs> passing the book to you, like, it, how do y'all handle sure. that?
0: Well, okay. There are, there are, you know, there are sites that you can look up safety of medications, but many of our new medicines really don't, there's no data out there. Right. I mean, just think about some of our new migraine medicines have been revolutionized you know, revolutionized care and migraine, but there's no data in pregnancy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, with the lack of of data doesn't mean it's safe, right? It just means we don't know. And so no one's tested it. And so, yeah, so that's the, many of my colleagues feel about uh, taking care of pregnant women the way many people feel about neurology. So they don't want to deal with somebody who's pregnant. So they send them to me and I'm happy to see them. Wow. Do you, err
1: on the side of caution then and not prescribe or is it case by case
0: well i think that in each in in each patient you have to think about a risk benefit right and so you know the you know, what is what is the what is the risk of, of treating with a particular medicine um, and what is the benefit, you know, and what is the risk of not treating? Right. So you have to, you know, weigh what you know, uh, weigh, what we know. And as much as possible, I want to go by, you know, get used medications and treatments that we know are safe, obviously, that we're going to, you know, obviously want to be safe. Wow. But, you know, I, but to, yeah, it's, it's it's a case by case um,
1: Not that I thought this episode was going to be about clinical trials, but we're going down that rabbit hole. And I have one more question that I want to double tap on for this, which is, and this is, you know, I don't know, neither you nor I have the answer. But just to dialogue about it, what do you think the solution is for uh, testing drugs on pregnant women in a regulated setting? Because I understand it's high risk to include pregnant or breastfeeding women in clinical trials. But as you said, like the clinical trial kind of already is happening in the public though, right? Right. Um, And so do you have any type of idea or solution for how do we circumvent this issue?
0: I really wish I did. I mean, pharmaceutical, you know, they want medications to be approved, right? Mm-hmm. And, and pregnancy is not the, the you know, pregnancy is not going to be something where you want to test safety in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that only gets t- tested later on in the real world when pregnant women who get there on these medicines, then they get pregnant and then you yeah. see. Um, um, I really wish more safety data were done in animals, um, at least pregnant animals, and at least have some ideas about, you know, um, how, how, what is the dose of the medicine or milligrams that are transported via breast milk, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you could just get some data about it, then you could at least have some foundation about what to advise patients. And yeah that's that's the problem is there's just a it's a black hole there's just not any data for yeah. many of these medicines um, so
1: if you were able to at least get breastfeeding women to measure their you know send in some samples of their breast milk yeah. and at least be able to say oh zero percent of the drug is here cool or oh my god the drug in its highest dosage is being given to the newborn in the breast milk you know i love that oh, cool this is why i have these conversations because we come up with ideas and like Hopefully, someone really smart listening will make a whole program and assay for it.
0: Um. (laughs) There's assays. It's not that there aren't assays. It's trying to get, you know, a trial and, you know, um, and to get, you know, someone to agree, you know, again, um, this in general, this is an area that's avoided because it's there's lots of pitfalls.
1: So it sounds more like a policy issue, like, hey, in order to get safety, like, we're going to ask you to requirement to do this and this. Anyways, that was such a fun conversation. Let's talk about brains. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Brains. Uh, What are some differences between male and female brains?
0: Well, there's actually a fair amount of uh, technology generated a lot of data that there's lots of differences between how men and women's brains are wired and how they work. Um, So like there's biological basis to sex cognitive differences, for example. Mm -hmm. So they looked at um, this really interesting trial with monkeys and they showed that male monkeys tended to prefer certain kinds of toys, toys that had wheels on them, whereas female monkeys like these plush. Little kind of toys. Now you can you know obviously that has nothing to do with their monkey parents, right? Yeah, um, and so isn't that interesting? And then there is some trials like looking at studies looking at boys and girls, and there's really clearly diff- marked differences in what they preferentially go to. and having t- fraternal twins, I can tell you my my boys, they were both. There was no. I could, If they wanted to play with dolls, I would have given them dolls. But they had not wanted anything. They wanted <laughs> trucks. They wanted. You know, it's really interesting. Women excel in certain kinds of um, cognitive tasks, like verbal ability. Women generally have, you know, great reading comprehension, better writing abilities than men on the average, right? And mm-hmm. um, they so they outperform men in certain other kinds of tasks, like co- uh, coordination and perceptual. Um, speed where men are better at juggling things in their working memory. And they also have maybe uh, the superior visual spatial skills, seeing how things are in three dimensions. And probably that is probably why they do better in things like engineering and physics. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is not that no woman has this, but on the average, um, you know, so like if you, for women, they you saying, how do you get from A to Z? They, women, um, rely on landmarks, right you see the grocery store that you know that, whereas men sort of think about their calculating their position by the direction and distance rather than using landmarks, so men and women's brains work very differently and they're wired differently um,
1: what are some phases of life that a female brain changes? I, pres- I know we're going to talk about pregnancy, how the brain changes then, but are there other like time points in a female's life that her brain has dramatic shifts in it?
0: So ma- male and female fetuses develop b- brain differences in utero. Oh, so even from the freaking yeah, inception, so we got different brain. Yeah. brain so there's genes and hormones that affect brain development. Mm. Um, and then, you know, so these, you know, so these changes are already inherent before the baby's even born. Yeah. And then, how you perceive your sex is then influenced by your environment, too, right? And yeah. your experiences and how we act, either male or female. So it's it's complicated, but um it's clear that there's major brain changes before you know in bur- in utero. Mm-hmm. Um adolescence is another time that there's a major change um with puberty. Um, there's this dramatic change in hormones for both boys and girls, and there and it turns out that both boys and girls, they prune their, their brain connections, their gray matter connections. And so they're more sculpted into an adult form to be a more adult male or more adult female. So there's changes that go along that in the amidst the hormonal changes, uh, that cause the developing brain to be more male or more female. Mm -hmm.
1: And then, uh um, we're going to talk about pregnancy, but I guess during your period, does your brain change at all? Like on a monthly basis? I, I don't
0: know if there's any studies to look at that. I mean, oh my gosh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> clearly, that we know with changes in hormones, that we there's mood and sleep changes. Yeah and certainly predilection to certain kinds of headaches particularly migraines occur so there are changes you know, so those hormone changes do occur in the brain because that's where these things are all happening right yeah well so estrogen does affect uh, your um, likelihood to get a migraine i mean that's why women have migraines three times more than men because of hormonal changes um and certainly depression, anxiety are much more common in women too. And it's thought because of that hormonal allure and how men and women's brains are wired differently.
1: We need to get some women who are menstruating and different phases of their cycle in an MRI or something to look at, you know, brainwave activity. That'd be so cool to see.
0: Well, I don't think we're going to see, on an MRI, we're not going to see anything oh, different. Oh, sorry. You told oh, me, you doctor. have to do something very, very more high tech, like a functional MRI. Okay, yes. Our routine imaging isn't going to show changes. We, we These are going to be wiring changes. Yep. Right? Yeah, the activity. Yeah, yeah changes exactly. in activity.
1: Yeah, um, so let's dive into the the pregnancy part. So you know, part of this in, uh, interview was inspired by a friend of mine, John from grad school, whose wife uh, last year unfortunately had RCVS, so reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome. How did okay. I do? Pretty good. <laughs> Very
0: good. Um, we RCVS because it is a mouthful. Yeah,
1: RCVS, and she unfortunately you know suffered. Uh, Uh, some serious injuries during her pregnancy and during childbirth with this and it had to do with her neurobiology and how it changed during pregnancy. And John requested, you know, an interview for somebody to talk about how does the brain change or what are the risk factors now that are, you know, neurological risk factors due to pregnancy and childbirth. So tell me how does the brain change or what in the body is changing that then is, you know, affecting the brain during pregnancy?
0: Well, okay. So pregnancy affects <laughs> affects you so many ways, right? Um, so it, uh, you know, there's a hot, different hormonal milieu with high estrogen, progesterone. There's changes in your blood system that make you more likely to clot, um, and that's the body's way of preparing you to deliver without losing a lot of blood, you know, blood. There's changes in, in the immune system that occur in pregnancy. Um, so certain kinds of uh, immune disorders like multiple sclerosis for instance, ha- occur relapses are much less frequent in pregnancy because of the changes in the in the immune system. There's changes in volume of blood, you know, and there's changes in excretion of how drugs are excreted and increased uh, for many drugs. And guess it shouldn't surprise you that there's actual brain changes. What may not be surprising to someone like you, but is surprising to a neurologist is there's very little data about how the brain changes during pregnancy. I mean, that I'm not
1: surprised. Yeah. I
0: mean, mean, every other organ system, you know, the heart change, the cardiac output goes up, the renal uh, clearance goes up, every other organ system and how, these hormonal things affect the brain yeah. is is one thing um and it, again how all of these other th- factors you know hyper the hypercoagulable increased clotting can affect the brain but how does the actual brain change during pregnancy little little data um but there, there are some things that there may be some there is brain remodeling and some, some uh, that there there are changes that research uh, people have found um, so one of the things that was really interesting when I was looking at this was that certain parts of the brain that have to do with um, social cognition and recognition um, change. and and it turns out that these changes correlate with mom's ability to um, make attachment to their baby. Um so there's changes in the brain that are adaptive to to, you know, improve mom, baby, um, uh, interactions. Um, so, um, very, very interesting. And again, these are changes that are found on not on anatomical brain scans, but functional scans. Um, so, uh, and apparently that can last a couple for a couple of years. So, um, again, making mom more likely to get attached to their infant, um,
1: But yeah, um, the babies are literally hypnotizing us on a biological level to keep them alive and to not, not shake them and love them and, you know, care for them as they demand so much of us. Oh, yeah. Do you have any kids? Not yet. Just animal kids. Okay.
0: But (laughs) you can imagine it's like when I was on maternity leave, I went back and when I came back to work, people said, isn't this hard coming back to work? I said, no, this is the easy job. (laughs) This is so it is a lot of, and so, yeah, that the fact that your brain changes to allow to you to, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so we, you know, we've talked on the show before about preeclampsia, which is essentially like the increased um, blood pressure and that can lead to stroke, right? And so strokes, you know, my understanding is that it's like either um, a bl- like clock, clots in the in the brain and the veins and the arteries and stuff that like then burst or like weak um, linings of the veins, arteries. Can you kind of walk us through like the biology of a stroke and why high blood pressure, i.e. preeclampsia and pregnancy is uh, correlated with this?
0: Sure. Um, So uh, luckily, stroke and pregnancy is not common. Um, So that's the first thing It's like 30 in 100,000 okay okay so it's uncommon i work at a quaternary care center so we see that we see it but it's not a common thank goodness um so there's we as a neurologist we think of strokes in two different ways they we call ischemic strokes that where there's a clot and the circulation doesn't get to a part of the Uh, brain uh or hemorrhagic strokes and um and it turns out that high blood pressure increases both the risk of both hemorrhage and ischemic strokes. Um, so that's one. The other thing is the milieu of being pregnant and postpartum increases the risk because I told you that the blood... Um, is there's changes in hematology to make it more likely to clot. So we call that hypercoagulable. So pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. So -hmm. if you already have a tendency to be hypercoagulable, then you put on high blood pressure with that. You can see why that might, even though these are all, yeah. So you can see how that might increase your risk of um, stroke. So preeclampsia is a large risk factor for stroke in pregnancy, um, um, both hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke, um, and and unfortunately, we're getting preeclampsia is becoming more common in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's driven by obesity and and high blood pressure before pregnancy, and and, um, and also advanced maternal age uh, contributes to that. So our preeclampsia is actually one in twenty five pregnancies in the U.S. will be complicated by preeclampsia. But luckily, the risk of stroke is is still small.
1: Is there any uh, disproportionate, uh, uh, is it disproportionately affecting any race, any specific race or? Yeah,
0: Um, um, it it, it is disproportionately affecting um, black individuals. Uh, Some of this is because of social determinants of health mm -hmm. um, that they may not have as good access to medical care. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a really important um, question and concern so what is
1: RCVS? Is that similar? Is that a whole nother disease? Like where does that fit in this?
0: Yeah. 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 So, um, we have to talk a little bit about the, what happened. So in preeclampsia, so preeclampsia and RCVS in the, in the state of pregnancy are overlap syndrome. Okay. okay? So what happens in preeclampsia is that it's a, um, Disor- multi-organ system disorder. It actually starts at the time the placenta gets implanted, and and it's driven by a lot of different autoimmune kinds of things. But what happens is the the placental maternal uh, units should be a low capacitance unit, but that doesn't happen, and so it uh, hi- hi- um, hypertension occurs, and in that setting of hypertension. You can get, of course, different end organs involved, the kidney, the liver. And in the in the brain, what happens is certain parts of the brain are more vulnerable to high blood pressure. And that turns out it's usually the back parts of the brain, um, which we call the occipital and parietal lobes, where vision um, and uh, visual spatial things are put together. And so... Preeclampsia can cause this condition called posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or we call it press because it's posterior it's usually reversible confusion is part of it and press when you see it on an MRI you can see white matter changes mostly in the in mostly in the occipital region although that's not always the case and so this um, press can be an overlap syndrome with RCBS. So at the same things that drive um, it's really driven by endothelial injury can cause endothelial injury in the vasculature. And this vasculature can spasm or dilate. And, and when that happens um people develop RCVS if it happens in the blood in the blood vessels in the brain. And so um, they, they can spasm. If there's spasm, then they may not have enough blood flow, so you can get an ischemic stroke. They can dilate and rupture, and they can get a hemorrhage stroke. So RCVS is um, the most common thing it presents with this, what we call thunderclap headache, a severe headache that happens just like that. And that those headaches can be recurrent, um, And um, then, of course, you can get stroke and hemorrhages as well. So it's this overlap syndrome where they – so in the setting of being pregnant or postpartum, you're more – women who have preeclampsia are more likely to develop RCVS. RCVS outside of pregnancy is often caused by certain medications um, and illicit drugs so, anything that increases the sympathomimetic system, can, or serotonin system, can cause it. So, for example, um, SSRIs, the serotonin, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like the Prozac, they can cause RCBS in certain prone individuals. Mm-hmm. Marijuana can cause it, and cocaine can cause it. There's a you know, list of drugs. So, drugs can cause it. It can also happen in the setting of, like I said, in pr- with um, preeclampsia. So, it's a... We think about it in pregnancy as it's an overlap syndrome. So it, having um, preeclampsia makes you is is a risk factor for RCBS If that,
1: yeah, yeah. But they're separate.
0: They can be separate, but they're often an overlap.
1: Yep. I'm learning so much about brains. I love this show. I love hosting the show. <laughs> um, so, what is like the the um, turning, like the turning point for when a doctor would say, okay, this is not just regular pregnancy headaches. This is something worse because something we talk about a lot in femtech and women's health is um medical gaslighting. Women going to their physician saying I have pain or I have extreme fatigue or I have, you know, headaches. And it's often said, well, that's part of being a female. Like it's your period, take more Advil. Or if it's a headache, just take this. Right. And so at uh, what, like, Talk to me about medical gaslighting, women presenting these symptoms. Like, do you wish more doctors knew about this? Or tell me more about that. the system of getting this diagnosed and treated.
0: You're talking about the system of getting RCBS diagnosed and treated or headaches in general?
1: Uh, It's a great question. I guess um, the headaches that lead to that, right? Or that that are a symptom of it.
0: so, So there's certain things as a... So I happen to work in a place where I have unbelievable uh, maternal fetal medicine colleagues um and and we work closely together and the op- uh, obstetrical neur- uh, anesthesia people as well and so they know like they can ask us these questions that ha- uh, we will see these patients in an expeditious way but there's certain things that I as a neurologist I say oh these are red flags right okay. so i have a lot of patients who have a lot of women who have migraines right and so um You know, are the headaches different? You know, are they, are they the same headaches? I mean, most women who have migraines or who have recurrent headaches, they'll say, yeah, these are my typical headaches. So are they different? That's a red flag. Are they thunderclap? They happen like that, you know, worst headache of your life that's a, you know, um headaches with associated neurologic symptoms that hasn't been previously evaluated. So that's a red flag. Wake up headaches, headaches that are worse with cough or sneeze, those are red flags. So, and then um in pregnancy, when the headaches happen in pregnancy is a huge clue. Oh. So, so it, it turns out that, so the, the complications of pregnancy, like preeclampsia, even though I told you it starts at placental implantation, the clinical manifestations never happen before 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. So when I see a, a, a woman in the first trimester of pregnancy, it's not going to be preeclampsia, anything related to preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. The hypercoagulable problems in pregnancy, again, are the, your body's way of preparing you for delivery so they start in the first trimester but the clotting disorders like clots in the veins and artery clots don't usually happen at least in our series they all of them happen in the postpartum period
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, so when you're seeing the woman in pregnancy it's a big clue so when I see a woman in the first trimester, Almost all those headaches are benign headaches. I mean, benign in understanding, that I don't mean that they're not debilitating, but benign in that they're unlikely, they're primary headaches, they're migraines for the most part. Mm-hmm. Second, the in the second trimester is a time of a lot of weight gain. And so some women will present with a different kind of headache called idiopathic intracranial hypertension related to weight gain and elevated pressures. The last trimester, and particularly postpartum, new headaches in the postpartum period, in that time period, two-thirds of those are secondary. So that means bad, it's something else causing the headache, not a primary headache disorder. So when the headache happens, as well as the other kinds of red flags, is really important. So you can put those two things together. And then as a neurologist, you know, obviously a careful exam is very important including making sure that they don't have any uh, evidence of elevated pressure, like looking at the eye and looking at the optic nerve. And then imaging, when appropriate, MRI imaging is totally safe. We don't use the gadolinium dye, but it's totally safe. And we can also, via MRI technology, image arteries and veins without giving dye. So we, um, so I have a low uh, index to order imaging for, for somebody with new headaches during pregnancy, I'm going to order imaging because I don't want to miss, even if I, even what I told you before, if there's any new headaches are that's, that's a red flag. It ticks off. off. box.
1: Do women who are on Medicaid get access to neurologists and these
0: types of scans? We take, we take all insurances. Well, having said that, we do have an access problem, right? And here, here I am saying, of course, but I, You know, I work in Boston where there's probably more neurologists than many parts of the country. It still can be a long journey in order for patients to see us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it take a long time just because of, um, yeah, there's just a lot of people waiting to see. We have a supply-demand thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, in my OB clinic, I try to arrange that differently. So so we have a wait time to see neurology. Mm -hmm. And in that way, time can be several months. That doesn't really help you much if you're pregnant, right? So, um, in in, that, in my OB clinic, I we I work with my uh, as secretary and the administrative staff to get access. But people who are lower social they just have less access to medical care. Period. Yeah, yeah, and, they, uh, and yeah, they and, and and sometimes they don't aren't able to navigate. It's the, navigate the system is so hard. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then sometimes you just need someone to advocate for you. And all of those things are, are harder if there's insurance and, and other, um, barriers.
1: Yeah. Is there any, um, uh, thing you want women listening to know about like how to prevent these types of things or are these, are these just unpreventable and they just need an action plan if they experience it?
0: Well, so, Preeclampsia. We have a very uh, well. First of all, we know who's at risk for having preeclampsia. And there's certain things that put you at higher risk. Older age, um, you know, multiple gestational, you know, having twins or triplets that puts oh. you at higher risk. If you have high blood pressure or overweight, you have diabetes, you have kidney disease. These things all put you at higher risk. So, um, so people who are at um, higher risk you know, should be seeing high-risk obstetricians, right? Um, we do have treatment. So first of all, they get watched like hawks, right? Because they'll be very closely monitored with, you know, alter- with blood pressures and ultrasounds to make yeah. sure everything is going well. Um, low-dose aspirin, um after twelve weeks of pregnancy is shown to decrease risk of preeclampsia, and that so if someone has a high risk of preeclampsia or even several moderate risk factors, they'll they're put on low dose aspirin.
1: Yeah. Uh, is there anything you wish people knew about women's brain health that like you wish people just knew more about, or is there a misconceived notion?
0: I, I think the misconception is that you know men and women you know, these diseases are the same in them. And the, the point is that they're not. Um, not only are there different, you know, uh, prevalence of disorders, but the way you approach treatment is quite different. Uh, so for example, I mean, in, in in a young woman, let's just take something we haven't talked about at all, epilepsy, mm-hmm. a young woman, with epilepsy, epilepsy isn't different in between men and women. Except how you manage those patients is different. So a young woman with epilepsy, you know, you have to ask the one question, are you planning or any young woman who has any neurologic problem, the question I want to ask is, are you planning pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. How I'm going to, you know, I want to uh, put them on the right medications that that are safe during pregnancy. I want to plan for pregnancy. I want to... plan for pregnancy. I want to put them on appropriate contraception. I want to put them on a contraception that isn't going to aggravate their neurologic disorder. Um, and so I want to have a plan. And, and so having, so going early, um, you know, and understanding all the, how these nuances play out, because even in think diseases that aren't different, like migraine is quite different in women versus men, but epilepsy is the same, except how you manage it is very different. Um, right. Wow. Or, uh you know neur- uh, neuromuscular disorders like uh you know how do you manage a a, a pregnant woman who has Charcot marie tooth or some other neuromuscular so planning is really important so i wish the the pla- women are good at planning but the more planning the better because mm-hmm. you want to have a pre- a, pre- a plan for if you don't want to get pregnant and then plan for when, ew, for pregnancy and then a postpartum plan as well, right? Is this, you know, should I start back on my medication? Should I breastfeed? Obviously, we want to encourage breastfeeding. It's good for everybody. It's good for mom. It's good for baby. And then I also wish that women knew more that some of these complications that happen during pregnancy, such as pregnancy-induced hypertension or preeclampsia, have sequelae decades down the line i don't know if you knew of that if you have preeclampsia your risk of having a stroke two and three decades later is about at least two times higher wow and if you have gestational diabetes you have 50 percent chance of getting diabetes within five years um after so it has these have ramifications mm-hmm. for women's health decades longer down the road we know Um, things like uh, uh, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy have cognitive risk factors, um, you know, risk for decreased cognition decades later. So we really need to, the more people understand about that, the more you can manage these risks, right? Because if you know how important it is decades later, then maybe you can manage these things. So you don't develop um, diabetes or so that your blood pressure is well controlled. Yeah. Um,
1: I didn't know that, and I'm the host of the show, so I'm learning right now. Like, if it well, happened in pregnancy, doesn't mean it just stopped and it's over forever. It's kind of like in that's you, what yeah. It is.
0: No, wow. I, I guess you can sort of think about pregnancy as a stress, as a, yeah. a stress test, and it, uh, having been pregnant with twins, it's a stress test, yeah. and so if you, it's a stress test for cardiovascular health. So mm-hmm. if you develop any of these things in pregnancy, it just means that you're at risk to, to get those right. later on. Right. But and yeah, so it's it's a really interesting, and it's our window to actually prevent that, right? Yeah. I mean, yes. you know, I mean, the best way to Treat stroke is not to have it at all. So to prevent it.
1: Yeah. You mentioned briefly of about with the epilepsy patient, like what contraception wouldn't aggravate their neurological disorder. Is that unique to epilepsy or is that a thing where contraception actually affects your brain?
0: Well, y'all. Oh, yeah, it's not, it's unique at all. So hormonal contraception um, can aggravate many headache disorders, right? Oh. So, so, and, and it's, it's, relatively contraindicated in others. So let's take something really common like migraine. As a neurologist, we divide migraine into migraineurs with aura and without aura. Mm -hmm. And migraineurs with aura have a very small but real increased risk of um, stroke. Small. And and it it doubles it from 1% to 2%. But we don't add on estrogen. Estrogen itself has a risk of stroke. So we avoid Combined hormonal contraceptives in women who have migraine with aura. Now there are, it's everything is a risk-benefit. There may be a certain situation where it's appropriate to do that, but in general, turns out migraine, migraineurs without aura often have a hormonal exacerbation of their migraine. So with changes in level of estrogen that occur like at menstruation or during the first trimester of pregnancy, their headaches are often increased Mm -hmm. and so you can sometimes treat their uh, migraines with um, hormonal contraception so migraine without or may have them maybe on a contraceptive pill where they don't have periods for three months and that Mm -hmm. takes care of their menstrually related migraine yeah Uh, so there's a very it's yeah and then some of our, you know, the other thing is some of the medicines we give can interact with um, hormonal birth control and making it less effective, right? Absolutely. So if you're on a contraception and I give you some of my, some of the anti seizure medicines, some of them can decrease the uh, how effective they are, and so you didn't want to get pregnant and you get pregnant. So we need to know these things, right? Yep. That's uh, right. So it, it's a it's it works both ways. So our medicines can affect hormonal contraception and hormonal. Con- can affect the neurologic disorders.
1: Uh, Dr. O'Neill, this has been a fascinating interview. It's gone over time. I don't care. It's so juicy and awesome content. This is incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
0: I really love being here. So thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Mary O'Neill. The expert in women's neurology serving as the director of the women's neurology program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. To learn more about Brigham and Women's Hospital, go to brighamandwomen's.org. Be sure to subscribe to the FemTech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.